0: A special thanks goes out to the folks at Spotify for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, part two of Trouble on Everest. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Read Your Story. Coming to you almost live. It's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster Tom Zanian. And we are back. Yes, we are back, and this time, uh, yeah, again, we are a day late. Uh, like I had said in the last episode of Tom, Reader's story, the greatest spoken word podcast on the internet. <laughs> if I don't say so myself, um, last time I said that uh, I need some time. I'm working on a new project, and I just can't stick to a schedule where the podcast is concerned. I'm it's going to be either late or early or not there at all each week. Okay? If you could please abide with that, I'd greatly appreciate it. I know I am begging you to listen every week, but still. Uh I just need your help at this time. Oh, there's dark dogs barking again. Gee. That only happens 10,000 times a day. Uh, anyway, the, uh, the story today is a continuation of the last one about Mount Everest. This is part two, and we, we're learning a lot. Now, I, I know you've all seen movies about mountain climbing, especially Everest. There have been several. There's also plenty of documentaries that you can find online about Everest, um, but the first hand human adventure experience is what I really enjoy putting out there uh on the show, on this podcast. And this has really got it in spades. Um it's getting tragic, okay, with part two and uh and dangerous. And I've never done any mountain climbing myself. Now, here's the thing. When I was a kid in Michigan, uh, we, me and uh, my brother-in-law and my, or his his brother, so my brother-in-law and his brother uh, went to the Porcupine Mountains up in the UP, the upper peninsula of Michigan. And boy, that is some work. And, you know, those aren't big mountains. The, those are nothing. Those are probably the lowest mountains in the country. Anyway, I could be wrong. But I'm just saying it ain't Mount Everest. It's not even close. Uh, and it was work. That was sweat and humidity and deer flies. Boy, that was rough. And I'll always remember that. That was really some hard work, especially for, you know, we weren't even teenagers back then, I don't think. Or wait a minute, well, how old were we? Yeah, we were probably teenagers. But anyway, still, it was pretty rough rough going uh, for a first time mountain experience. And that's, I don't think I had any more mountain experiences after that. Um, I may have walked a few trails, but not in mountains. Um, But anyway, getting back to the subject at hand, um, this is part two of Trouble on Everest. Among those who had also expected to be near the top by daybreak on Thursday morning was Chris Dare, a dentist with the Canadian Armed Forces. Like Grubhofer, he had started for the summit Wednesday night falling in with a long line of headlamps snaking through the darkness. One of those headlamps belonged to Dare's buddy, Kevin Hines, a gregarious 56-year-old from Galway, Ireland. But Hines made it only a 100 yards out of camp three before he turned around. He wasn't feeling up to it and decided the prudent move was to head back. Dare pressed on, figuring he'd reach the top by six o'clock in the morning. But long, debilitating waits at each step delayed him until just before 9.30. Soon after his moment at the summit, of course, the weather Thursday afternoon began to turn ugly. At around 10 a.m., Dare was heading back toward Camp 3 when he encountered a member of his team, Cam Cower, a British yoga instructor still inching toward the summit with her guide. Cower was an experienced mountaineer, but, says Rolf Ustra, the Australian guide leading the group, she wasn't in top physical condition, and it was dangerously late to be making the summit push. She was determined to go forward. Covered with ice, short on oxygen, and physically spent, Dare made it back to Camp 3 at 7 p.m. and collapsed in his tent. He was barely conscious later when a commotion erupted outside. The Sherpa, whom Dare had seen earlier that day, helping Kaur up the mountain, had staggered into camp, incoherent and alone. They'd run into trouble, he said. According to Ustra, the Sherpa's oxygen ran out and he'd been forced to leave Kaur to seek help. Ustra had been to the top once before, but had abandoned his summit push that morning at the second step after a faulty regulator valve had blocked his oxygen flow. "'Where's Cam?' he demanded when he saw the Sherpa. "'She's up there,' the Sherpa gasped. Ostra strapped on his crampons and grabbed an oxygen cylinder and a headlamp. As he prepared to climb, he spotted a light high on the ridge and flashed his headlamp three times. Three flashes returned. Oostra locked onto to the point in the darkness where he'd seen the light, and set out up the icy slope. When he found Cower, she was curled into the fetal position. Her oxygen had run out, and she was drifting in and out of consciousness. It hadn't been Cower who'd signaled Ustra. Her light was nearly dead, but rather another man, a badly weakened Indian climber, who flashed for help and then staggered away. Cower disputes Ustra's timeline though she told GQ that she's not yet ready to publicly share her story. In Ooster's telling, Cower was practically helpless when he found her on the rock. "'Can't move my hands, babe,' she whispered. "'They're frozen.' Ooster strapped her into a sling, clipped it to his harness and repelled her down the buttress. Then he pushed and dragged her back to Camp 3." shouting above the wind to keep her awake. For the first-timers on the mountain, the multitude of climbers who had never been to Everest, the crowds and the chaos might have seemed normal. But the Sherpas knew better. Hundreds of them were scattered on the high slopes that night, and many of them understood that the mountain had never seen anything like this. Each year, in the months before the climbing season, Mountaineering agencies identify the most agile and fearless men from high-altitude Sherpa villages and then hand them awesome responsibilities. Sherpas lay the fixed ropes that guide climbers to the summit, lug the heavy oxygen bottles that keep their clients alive, and closely monitor their clients' physical and mental states. The work is risky, In April 2014, 16 Sherpas died in an ice avalanche on the Nepali side of Everest. Two Sherpas would die in the spring of 2019 in the Nepali Himalayas, yet the money, as much as $10,000 per season, provides an escape from the poverty of rural Nepal. The men often form an emotional bond with their clients, living beside them for weeks, sharing their victories and their setbacks. The finest walk a faint line between being helpful and being obedient, between bowing to their clients' wishes and saying no when those wishes seem dangerously misguided. On Grubhofer's expedition, one of the lead Sherpas was Dendi Sherpa, a 37-year-old veteran who had worked for Kobler & Partners since 2008 and had summited Mount Everest six times having worked his way to a top guide spot on Kobler's team. Dendy had remained behind Camp 3 on the day of the summit push. Now Grubhofer, inching his way down, just past the second step, was headed in Dendy's direction when he heard agitated shouts and cries right behind him. His immediate thought was that his teammate Ernst Landgraf was in trouble. Landgraf was an experienced summiteer, but he was exhausted at the top. As he and Grubhofer sat on the summit that morning, congratulating each other, Grubhofer noticed that Landgraf seemed particularly spent. A Sherpa on his team had the same impression when he confronted Landgraf the night before they set out for the top. He was weak, but he said, This is my goal. I have to go to the summit. And I thought, let him do it. It's quite difficult to tell him, you cannot. The Sherpa faced a dilemma, confronted by many guides on Everest, how to respond to the determination of an apparently ailing or unfit climber. Only rarely, many experts say, will a Sherpa demonstrate the force of will to override a client's decision to summit. For new recruits trying to make a mark in a competitive business, Getting a client to the top often becomes the priority. Grupofer listened again for the shrieks. Please don't let it be Ernst, he thought. But it was. Later, Grupofer learned that Landgraf had slipped while trying to plant his foot on a ladder. Grupofer was told that because Landgraf had been clipped by his carabineer to the fixed line when he fell, he banged into the ladder and then dangled limply on the line guides quickly attempted to free him. The wind was blowing, the temperature was dropping, and the climbers behind Landgraf's suspended body were desperate to get off the mountain. Later, Kunta Joysher heard that the waiting climbers were getting agitated. Cut him off the rope, some yelled. We're getting blocked, we'll die. The rescuers struggled to get Landgraf off the line. After determining that he was dead, They pushed him aside and left his body hanging there. The exact cause of his death is unknown. But Kuntal Joyser says that at that altitude, with a weakened body under intense stress, the slightest stumble can be disastrous. A small slip or fall can cause your heart rate to shoot up to such a level that you will have a massive heart attack. On the other side of the mountain, the Nepalese approach was turning into its own scene of confusion and death On Thursday. Gyanenda Shrestra, a Nepalese government liaison officer at the Everest base camp, had foreseen the trouble, watching days earlier as over 200 climbers milled around the tents waiting to set off for the top. One of them was an old friend of his, Kalpena Das, an Indian attorney who had summited Everest in 2008. Das had been given a hero send-off, by thousands of admirers in her hometown before she set out for Everest in April as, as part of an all-woman's team of climbers. But Shrestha, having observed her during runs up the mountain in mid-May, saw that she was off her game. She was very slow, and she was a decade older this time, 54, Shrestha says. I told her at the base camp, don't push yourself much, I have a sense you cannot do it this year. Das struggled on the ice icefall, the first obstacle beyond the base camp. She eventually made it to the summit at around 1 p.m. on Thursday, but she collapsed on the way down. When Shrestha received a Mayday call from Das's Sherpa, Das was unconscious, barely breathing. The guide said that he was too exhausted to bring Das down alone. A four-man rescue team was dispatched, but by the time they reached her hours later, Das had perished. Shortly after dawn the previous morning, Donald Cash, a Utah software salesman who had quit his job in December to devote himself to high-altitude climbing, had also reached the top. The achievement marked the completion of Cash's seven summits project, and overjoyed, he performed a little victory jig at the summit. Then, without warning, he sank to his knees and toppled over. Cash's guide raced to his side and opened wide the valve on his oxygen. The rush of air revived Cash and the Sherpa helped him down to the Hillary step, a 40-foot-high rock outcropping at 28,800 feet. A group of Sherpas had been dispatched to help bring Cash down, but when they arrived, it was too late. Cash had collapsed again and never got back up. Cash's body was left on the mountain, as his family wished. Largely unaware of the tragedies unfolding around them, the other teams on the route raced higher up the mountain. Anjali Kulakarni, an experienced marathoner and high-altitude climber from Mumbai, and her husband, Sharad Kulakarni, summited on the same day as Cash, according to an account in the Times of India. After leaving the summit with her husband, Kulakarni fell ill. Above Camp 4, the paper said, she collapsed and died. A video shows a pair of rescuers, presumably Sherpas, attempting to move Kulakarni's limp body. She lies unresponsive, her right arm extended, hands still clutching the fixed rope. The surviving members of Angeli Kulakarni's team staggered, mourning and half-dead, into Camp Four. Nearby, another exhausted Indian climber from a different expedition, 27-year-old Nihal Bhagwan, who, according to the Times of India, had abandoned a 2014 Everest climb 1,300 feet below the summit, would die of altitude sickness just before midnight on the 23rd. Bhagwan had been climbing with a Nepalese agency called Peak Promotion which had already lost three other climbers in the Himalayas the week before. The manager of Peak Promotion told GQ that the deaths in 2019 represent the first time the agency lost clients in its 27-year history. She also said that Peak Promotion has guidelines in place to ensure that Sherpas have extensive mountaineering experience. Another Nepalese agency, Seven Summit Treks, founded by four Sherpa brothers in 2010 and now one of the biggest mountaineering companies in Nepal, had an even worse record in 2019. On May 16, a client of theirs named Seamus Lawless, a 39-year-old computer science professor at Trinity College in Dublin, unhooked himself from the safety rope to relieve himself near Camp 4. According to Seven Summits, A climbing companion speculates that a freak gust of wind blew him off the mountain, and he apparently fell hundreds of feet to his death. His body was never recovered. That same night, Ravi Thakur, a 27-year-old Seven Summits client from Harina, India, died in his tent at the same camp. And in the days that followed, disaster struck three more times on expeditions led by Seven Summits, on nearby Makalu, the world's fifth highest mountain. When I met with him this summer, Tashi Sherpa, one of the founders of Seven Summits treks and the youngest person ever to reach the top of Everest without using supplemental oxygen, defended the company's safety record. Seven Summits had 64 clients on Everest that year, led by 100 Sherpas, and all but two had returned safely. He conceded that the climbing season had not been good, but he insisted that the company's practices are sound. 2019's tragedies involved a wide range of outfitters from all over the world, including elite European agencies like Kobler's. It's not the case that companies from poorer countries are inherently more troubled or lax in their safety considerations. Still, Kuntah Joyscher, the Indian climber, told me that the industry had become inundated with inexpensive agencies that cater to budget clients. Seven Summits' Everest trips generally cost $38,000, according to Tashi Sherpa. The cheaper companies often have less to pay for guides and are said to employ more experienced crews. Seven Summits insists that it rigorously trains its Sherpas and pays them higher than the market rate. These agencies have found a steady clientele among Indian climbers who typically have much less money to spend than European and Americans, and are dying on Everest at a greater rate than anyone else. Four out of the reported eleven who died on Everest in twenty nineteen were Indians. Of the seventeen who died on Nepal's eight thousand meter peaks, eight were Indian. Indians are showing up who have not even climbed a six thousand meter mountain, joysher says. So many got frostbite four died this year. Clearly there is something wrong. And that was part two of Trouble on Everest. Part three might be next week. If <laughs> I'm not sure what day next week, or if it will be next week at all. Uh, but thanks for bearing with me uh on this at this time where uh Things are a little bit crazy in my life. So um, I want to tell you that this brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today, because we're always looking for new ones. And I really mean that. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Take care, everyone. Until next time, bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.